What is it becoming? Voyager 1, the space probe launched in 1977, has started sending back confusing batches of data. 15 billion miles away from Earth, the craft sails on, further into that cold, unknowable expanse of interstellar space. While all reports are that it remains operational and that nothing indicates a problem with its instruments, the information it is sending back to Earth is flawed. It's not necessarily incorrect. It just doesn't line up with what it should be, with what was expected. Now that suggests a few intriguing options. One, an instrument is indeed malfunctioning and is somehow scrambling good data into something unreadable. Or, perhaps, what Voyager is experiencing way out there is correct. Just beyond current human understanding. Maybe the way we're reading the data is insufficient. Maybe our equations are wrong. Maybe something external is affecting the data stream or... Something out there is trying to send a signal to us that we're unable to read yet because we don't know the language. When you look at something, the time it takes for you to process information means that we are constantly seeing the very recent past. We are almost never in the moment. It may be different for other species. It may be different for other beings. We only see part of a vast spectrum, so of course we must be missing things all the time. We define our entire existence based on a perception informed by our experience. No less than the New York Times recently ran a piece about optical illusions. In one, a black orb that seemed to pulse, though it was indeed static. They claimed this meant that our brains were attempting to adjust to a future uncertainty. Two, in a very small way, travel through time to keep us safe. Maybe Voyager is doing something similar responding to some new force or perceiving things in new ways. Seeing an unfamiliar world for which our contemporary response is inadequate. What might be out there on the edge of the solar system? What changes might be in store for us as we travel further and further out, grasping for something to hold on to, seeing a reality that is entirely foreign to us, our brains frantically sending signals to move in anticipation of this new thing to be different, to change shape. Experiencing loss can feel like that. Suddenly we're out in the darkness, all familiar data points removed. One can almost feel yourself breaking apart and then trying to reassemble, but somehow we're unable to. The data has been corrupted. Or it's just not what you were ready for. I remain in that kind of liminal space, trying to recognize my own signals. Experiencing the beyond pulling it together, becoming something new. That's what we've been exploring all season long. So let's etch one more track into our personal golden records and launch a probe that will report back strange new findings when it sails beyond the known universe and into the deep night. Oh, friends, hello, it's me, Del Shiver. 
and I'm happy to be your host, guide, and guru through this next hour of regrets and revelations we call the Deep Night. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. And our Gowani may seem static, but I assure you it is very active. The chemicals of that fetid stream are always reacting, making heat, releasing new compounds into the air, and the Gowanus itself is listening, listening to the new condo dwellers and the whole food shoppers, to the distraught man eating donuts in a hot car in the very last spot of the Lowe's parking lot, to the possum nuzzling a grease-stained half-eaten bag of tortilla chips. The Gowanus hears and takes that in, a roiling sea of reactivity. What will it do after years of observing the changes of this place? Or is the Gowanus a Voyager spacecraft of its own, sending its findings back to some control center deep within the Earth? You know, I have a personal command center in my body, and it sure pays to listen to what it's saying. And sometimes it says, Dale, you need more than a bag of almonds and a Mexican Coke for lunch. Hey, you should try exercising. What are you paying for that membership to the Y for anyway? <laughs> and I have to send back a signal, does not compute, error, systems malfunction. <laughs> when Galenda overhears me talking to myself and doing the robot voice, she's very quick to suggest that it's time for my daily dose of AG1 from Athletic Greens. A single eight-ounce scoop of the tropical-flavored powder mixed into a tall glass of H2O gives me all the vitamins and supplements I need to get squared away and feeling good again. Now, partially, that's because I know that each serving contains 75 vital nutrients, organically sourced superfoods, and adaptogens. And that's what my body needs for greater clarity and improved mind and memory functions. It's a simple change in my habit that has resulted in big benefits. And right now, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Folks, it's just me tonight. And while I'd like to try something new with you, give you some unrecognizable data to parse, the fact is the T-key on my laptop has been loose for the past several weeks. And it turns out that you need a tiki for a lot more than you might think. <laughs> See, here's what happens. I type, and then I hit the T, and the entire key sticks to my finger for a second before dropping and sliding down to around the space bar. And yes, I have my laptop propped up on a little stand thing, because at one point I thought that putting it on this thing would make it run cooler during my remote interview sessions, and it could take care of the ambient uh, fan noise that happens every time I try to record. Alas, now all it really does is introduce gravity into a situation where I need less of it. The fan noise runs uninterrupted. So in addition to not being able to pull my thoughts together in the way that I normally like to do, I've just been at a little loss for what to contribute this week. I swear, uh, I think the same thing with my teletherapist. What are we going to talk about this week? And then I somehow managed to dredge up some old feeling to explore, and so that's what we're going to do uh, tonight. <laughs> I actually thought, what if I just went for it. And what if I just did a free-form episode where I ramble on in a meditative voice, hoping it either helps you focus or puts you to sleep? I figured that may still happen. 
So why try to be anything other than what I am this week? Which is kind of unformed and floating out here in interceiver space. I was trying to understand this season a bit, reflecting back on it. And the persistent theme, or one of them, I guess, that stands out for me is this idea of becoming, of coming into one's own and staying there for a bit. I think maybe that's what I found so moving about so many of my guests, that they had arrived at a place where their identity and their expression, be that gender or, or professionally, where things felt right. Maybe not always settled, but right. And how wonderful a space that must be to occupy. I'm still rolling around that point, unsure how things might land. A displaced joint in a socket. And as I continue to move through this swampy post-death moment, where, like the tiki on my laptop, I keep coming loose and slinking downward, I realize that those times when you can feel back in the socket, in the right place, known, are always just temporary. Even after dying, the person wriggles away from the fixed idea you may have held about them. They always portray ghosts as misty, floating above stairwells, or passing through an old oak door in a remote castle on a hill. But I think ghosts may be more eel-like, slippery, and of uncertain origin. As soon as you think you have locked in on something about someone, a parent, let's say, then they die. And then everyone comes out to contribute their side of the story, and the sliding begins. Suddenly you push a memory a little bit and it squishes out some new information, and then you think you can hold on to the idea of your parent once more uh, with this new information, but out they go. And now they're bringing your other dead parent with them. And now they're both mysterious again, hard to contain, their shapes always changing. The data being received from their distant place is incorrect or unreadable. Which means that between the three of you, none are holding constant. Just three valuable blobs, silly putty people that if left too long in a corner will just melt low and flat, taking on the shape of whatever is around, making it indistinguishable from the corner itself. Were it not for its vibrant, fleshy color, you might never see it. Now that's me, unable to decide a form on my own. What am I in relationship to those who are no longer with us and whose stories keep changing their shapes? Both parents dying is a weird sort of rebirth, and I guess one could go buy a sports car or get hair implants or buy up lots of pewter wizards on eBay late at night and regret it as the boxes start to come in two by two and you really don't have room for them. But what can you do? This is who you are now. External forces exert pressure too, like the corner or a floor. They mold us. Even without really trying, they creep and seep. I mentioned in an episode back that I was going down to keep up a tradition of placing a rose on my mother's grave for her birthday, which I did. I did that. It was important to my father, and he always did it to honor her, and so I did it, to honor them both. And I had hardly ever gone there to the cemetery on my own. I just never bought into the idea that to connect with my mother I'd have to go see her in a plot nestled in a yard situated between the entrance to the Pennsylvania Turnpike and the plaza at the King of Prussia Mall. I felt like she would have gone further afield, a spirit that was restless and eager to see the world. But my dad, well, he preferred things local, contained, confined, a keeper of traditions. His parents were buried right nearby, so for him I figured, yeah, he's probably there. Maybe not always, but mostly, and definitely to start with. 
See, I imagine our loved ones uh, get more comfortable moving about in the afterlife, but, but there's likely an initiation period where they're kind of fixed in one place, and then once they get the hang of it, they can flitter about, go to the mountains, sit in a stream, whatever they've always wanted to do. I mean, you're a ghost, so you can go be slippery somewhere other than a box in the ground. I wasn't expecting the military to exert so much pressure in the afterlife, either. To be so defining in its trappings and fondness for ritual, it is understating things to say that my father was no fan of his time in Vietnam. When he returned from service, he tossed out his uniform, grew a beard he never shaved, and forbid me from having anything to do with the army or military service of any kind. Yet here they are, the army showing up in strange ways after he died. There was a full military folding of the flag ritual at the funeral, which was moving, but unexpected. The playing of taps at the service, fine, and now, visiting his grave, instead of the stone and plaque with his name that we had ordered, there was a flag in a little bronze holder with the words Vietnam Veteran emblazoned on it. Is that what he would have wanted? We didn't ask for that, it's just done. In that way, it feels very on brand for the military. You're going to do whatever uh, they want you to do, whether you want to or not, and that your individualism means nothing. I guess that just makes me a little sad, because that wasn't who he was. But what can you do? Tradition. External forces. Acting upon us, even in the afterlife. My father's father's in the same cemetery. He was in World War II, stationed in D.C., proudly guarding the Potomac. His grave also got a little flag. I don't know how he felt about the military, but that was a different time, and he wasn't stationed in the Mekong Delta. And to be honest, we're not 100% confident his body is still there where we left it. See, at some point, there was a letter delivered to the home that notified us that they had to do some repair work to the grave site due to unseen forces. Those unseen forces, uh, we came to learn, were the work of an underground creek that had reasserted itself and was flowing once more. They didn't put this in the letter, but the implication was that bodies were moving. Coffins were coming unmoored. A fast-moving stream once thought dormant was back, and it was taking a whole raft of veterans and people's grandparents with them. The River Styx of Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. The information we were getting on the surface didn't match the data down below, and we couldn't reconcile it. So now we just pretend that everything's okay. Oh, and we pay more uh, for the new graves to have a cement bunker filled in around them. Less likely to shift, but how do we know for sure? Water is powerful, maybe more powerful than death. I keep coming back to this idea because nothing has quite matched this moment I'm in, the moment of realizing both parents are gone and now I am who I am without them. Which, okay, I'm old. I should have gotten there a little quicker, maybe. But I just always thought they'd be there, at least one of them. And the input I have is hard to make sense of and rapidly losing context. I hold photos and slides up to the light bulbs and windows to try to see glimpses of family Christmas trees or the wooden cradle my father made for me or the three of us together as it was, at least I think it was. I focus on a single memory, the tree. Well, I haven't seen that image in so long. Did I ever? I remember we used to buy live trees for Christmas, go to a farm and spend hours digging out a huge round ball of roots wrapping it in wet burlap and then bringing it home and putting it in a large metal wash bin that my mother would cover in festive cloth 
We'd decorate it, water it, keep it fresh, and when Christmas was over, my dad would go out and make a huge hole in the hard January dirt, or did he wait for warmer temperatures in April? I'm not sure. And that tree would now be a tree in our yard, until years later when it would be covered in bagworms that writhed in their little pinecone-like cocoons. You'd pick one off and stomp on it against the stones in the driveway, but a hundred more survived and spun silk that choked the tree, turning most of it brown and brittle. And eventually the tree would have to come down because of how much damage those worms had done. The worms would become moths and fly off and start again, but our Christmas tree was gone. Some we replaced. Some became just empty parts of the yard. That cradle that I saw, that's still in the attic. I saw it recently. What was meant to happen with it? I suppose we should have used it with baby Betsy, but I forgot about it at the time. And now it's just there, cracked in one spot, but repairable, and held on to for so long and then not used. So much that just sits gets devoured, changes shape, eaten by moths or silverfish or moisture that curls and warps. And I look at old photos and try and reconcile those days that I know happened, for I can feel them somewhere, sort of, but just as often I hold a loose photo in my hand and I don't remember it. Or it feels like it happened to someone else. Time moths eating away at the memories, damaging the edges, its form changing shape, a coffin slipping away, carried by an underground creek. These photos used to be in a book, but they also completed the book. The illustrations of a story, our story, as a family, and now I've lost the text that goes with them. The text that reveals itself when you hold a photo album on your lap and flip through it, and a parent leans in to say, that was the day we had to do this, or I was late for that, and I was so nervous that day, and the other parent would confirm or cajole and add their own layer. And now all that is gone. And so it's just the images, images that have even less meaning as I pass them on or let them sit, fodder for the pests and the humidity and the dust that will come for all of it, nourishing only its end. And if I keep coming back to this point, it's because I'm stuck in a loop about it. I keep expecting to reform in a new way. Be shiny, accepting, optimistic, more thoughtful, more full of grace. Uh, but I don't. I get grayer and feel sad and cry for no reason and every reason. I thought this season would be about me being solid, unmovable, that rock in the storm. But as we've said, rocks are changing constantly, especially in a storm battered by wave after wave and worn down by bits of shell and sand and silt. I may look like a thing that will always be here, but I am at best an unreliable landmark, something some future traveler will say, didn't there used to be a big rock there? And no one remembers, but they think that's right. It's a good place for a rock, someone will say. I don't want to suggest that it's all negative or depressing or sad. Life is all of that, plus joy and love and all the rest. My form has been altered in ways that I'm not yet aware, surely informed by joy, and thanks to all of my guests this strange season. I'm so thankful to them for their work and their presence and for being so open and sharing their stories and experiences. I'm once again given hope by these extraordinary people and their ability to make work of meaning and consequence in a time of unyielding hardship. And so many of the people on this show claiming a new identity changing their own data, and it may not be recognizable just yet to everyone, but it will be. 
We need to adjust our knobs and tweak our own dials. But it will happen. The future is so bright among these individuals. And on the ball fields of Park Slope, the sun shines for my beloved Brooklyn Boats, the softball team that Pepsi plays for and that we sponsor this season. The Boats had a rousing championship game on the dusty fields of Prospect Park. While victory remained elusive, a hurry-up inning with 13 minutes to spare left us cheering as run after run came in and made it as close as they've come to snagging a title. What joy it has been to sit on a folding chair in a park and cheer on these young people who display bravery and commitment and total happiness even in defeat. All right, not totally happy in defeat, but uh, nothing to hold on to for long. A group that shows up week after week and gets better and better and never gives up, even in the face of more experienced teams. And sometimes they weren't more experienced at all, just taller. Oh, it's inspiring, and friends, inspiration comes in many forms. I hope you keep seeking it out. And if you can, get your name on some shirts. <laughs> All the better. So, that will do it for us this season. A short, unusual, I hope honest season. It's been so valuable to me to be able to work through all of this as it happens and with you. Uh, there's still a lot being reassembled, and I am curious about what comes next. Will my turtleneck reform as a sleeveless tank? Will I keep being charmed when I hear just the right song being played by a street performer on the subway platform, something that perfectly captures my mood? What will we become together? And I gather there's some question about this, but I was reading some reports recently that there were some new radio signals coming from deep space. And uh, whether it's true or not, I feel like it might require a little trip out beyond the stars to investigate. Now, it seems like there could be someone trying to reach us, but we don't know. So using the powers given to me through transcendental meditation and a space fanny pack full of athletic greens travel packs, I might just transport my being out there and give these folks a friendly hello. I will be sure to report back when and if we resume for another season. Fifteen? Oh, goddess, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> oh, but it has always uh, been something. So thank you for sticking with it here on Deep Night. Um, I wish you a wonderful summer full of exploration and assuming new forms. And I look forward to whatever comes next. And I believe, as always, that even though this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is independently produced, written, and performed by James Bewley. Season 14 artwork by M.K. Cummins. Season 14 theme features lyrics and vocals by Kylie Lotz, music by Austin Lotz, and mixing by Zach Robbins. It's never too late to give Dale a positive review while hitting subscribe on Apple Podcasts. But you can also tune in to Dale's Frequency on Stitcher, Podchaser, SoundCloud, and Spotify, wherever you are. Dale's right there with you. To get in touch with mindfulness tips, positive reinforcement, or just to say hello, email Dale directly at daleradio at gmail.com. Be sure to follow him on Instagram by looking up at Dale Seaver. From our being to yours, thank you for visiting The Deep Night. <laughs>